glad to see everybody here today. And, uh, you know, if you've had kids or grandkids, <clears throat> when you listen to your kids and grandkids fight, and I'm sure your kids were angels and never fought, but just in case they did, did you ever hear them say things like, that's mine, or tell her to give that to me, or he won't share with me, or things like that, or she won't play with me. You've probably heard them squabble over little things like that. And you know, the reason is, is because our kids, just like us, are just selfish. There was a mother cooking breakfast for her two boys. Ryan was five and Kevin was three. And she was cooking pancakes, and they were having a fight over who was going to get the first pancake. And so mom decided she would teach her boys a little moral lesson, and so she said, boys, now... If Jesus were here, if he was sitting right here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake, I can wait. When she said that, Kevin turned to his younger brother and he said, I'll tell you what, you be Jesus. <laughs> uh, Winston Churchill was the uh, former prime minister, you all know, of Britain, World War II, and uh, there was a time when he, uh, after he was done being prime minister, he went on a cruise, just like we're getting ready to do, and he went on an Italian cruise line rather than the royal cruise line. And so he got on the Italian cruise line, and a journalist happened to see him, and so he went up to Winston Churchill, and he said, uh, Prime Minister, he said, how come you are not cruising on the royal cruise line? Why are you taking the Italian ships? And Winston Churchill, of course, looked at him, and he said, well... First of all, the Italians have superb food, great cuisine. He said, second of all, their service is unsurpassed. And he said, and third of all, they don't have any of this nonsense about women and children first. <laughs> so, you know, the bottom line is we're just selfish people. And last week we started looking at that in James chapter 4. We talked about the me, me, me syndrome. And we talked about the fact that the me, me, me syndrome makes God mad. And that's what we were looking at last week in James chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there. We're going to jump in here in just a second. And uh, we talked about the reason that it makes God mad is because the me, me, me syndrome happens when you and I follow our own evil desires. Even if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have inside of you the sinful nature, the sinful flesh. And so what happens, even for a lot of Christ followers, is we start following our sinful nature and our sinful desires. And as James says, it results in things like murder. Now, whether it was literal murder in the church or just people saying, I hate you, which Jesus says akin to murder could be what was going on. He said it resulted in coveting. There was quarreling. There was fighting. There was wars. There were people who were not consulting God and people who were when they were praying. We're praying with the wrong motives. And so God hates the me, me, me syndrome because it's the result of us following our own desires. And also we looked at last week, God hates the me, me, me syndrome because it's following culture. And we live in a world today, we're inundated by our culture like never before, I would argue, in which that's constantly what we hear. If it feels good, do it. Have it your way. You know, you deserve a break today. It's all about us our culture today is all about us. And so when God sees the me, me, me syndrome in his children, it makes God mad. It also makes God jealous. Here's what James said last week. He said, or do you think without reason that the scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously? James says when, when you, God sees that me, me, me syndrome in his children, it makes him jealous because God sent his son to die for you. 
And, and he adopted, if you received his son, he adopted you into his family. And, and, and he loves you with an everlasting love. And so when you turn your back on him and you start doing the me, 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 and it's all about me, it makes God jealous because God wants you to come to him for wisdom and God wants you when you pray to seek his will not your motives and things like that and so as James says that just really makes God mad the me 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 syndrome makes God mad and then as we wrapped up last week we said so how in the world how in the world do we cure the me 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 syndrome and we said basically you cure the me me syndrome with one simple word <clears throat> it's the word humility and that's what James says. James quotes from the scripture in James chapter 4, verse 6. And he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in fact, if you look at James' letter, humility is a central theme throughout his letter. And why is it such a big theme throughout his letter? Because humility cures the me, me, me syndrome. That's why God why James talks about it all throughout his letter because the way that we cure these quarrels and these fights and these arguments and these selfish motives and all these things is the me, me, me syndrome is through humility. Now, <clears throat> humility. I think that's a word a lot of us just don't really get. For most of us, when you think of humility, what mental image comes to your mind? I would imagine it's somebody who may be weak, okay? Or it's somebody who's kind of been knocked down a peg in life. You've probably heard the phrase, they had to eat humble pie. I've heard that. Or when you think of the word humility, you think of being humiliated, or you think of maybe somebody who we would say is humble, we think of a quiet person, a kind of a mousy person, a person that doesn't want to give uh, their opinion. And the reality is, when we talk about humility, honestly, that just doesn't get a lot of us excited. I mean, we talk about love. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's great benefits to loving one another. We talk about self-control. Oh, man, that's a great virtue. Man, there's wonderful benefits to self-control. We talk about joy. Yes, we want all joy. All of us want joy. But when we say, hey, we ought to be humble, a lot of us are like, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, aren't humble people kind of weak people? Aren't they kind of mousy people? Aren't they kind of people who have beat down, you know, attitude? Okay, yeah, we're supposed to be humble as Christians, but... I don't know. Really? I don't know if I want to walk around and be, you know, kind of mousy or beat down or something like that. And, and, and it's kind of as Christians, let's face it, sometimes we don't know how to deal with compliments. You know, some, if somebody comes up and says, oh, that was great. You know, sometimes as Christians we think, oh, I need to be a humble person. So we'll say, oh, it's, it's not me. That's, thank you very much. But it had nothing to do with me. Or when we take compliments, sometimes we, we're almost embarrassed as Christians because we're thinking, I'm supposed to be humble, so, oh my goodness, I, I, I don't want, you know, you don't compliment me. I have to be honest, I struggle sometimes when somebody will come up and say, Jim, that was a great sermon. Sometimes I'm like, how do I respond to that? I mean, do I say, you're welcome? Because I don't want to take glory from God. So, so what do I say, or, you know, or do I say, oh, it's not me, it's God? I mean, sometimes I honestly, when people come up and say those things, I don't, sometimes I'm like, how do I respond in a humble way without having pride? And, and so for a lot of us, the whole idea of humility, really we're told in the Bible that, that we're to be humble. A lot of us think kind of self-loathing. We're supposed to be kind of mousy, we're supposed to be quiet, we're supposed to be guilt-ridden, shame-ridden, eating humble pie and things like that. And yet, we keep coming up with this fact 
God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So it's like, okay, God, how's this supposed to work? Am I supposed to work, kind of walk around with my head down all the time? Well, I'm a humble person. Somebody gives me a comment. Oh, I'm, oh don't, don't say anything. I mean, how is this supposed to work? What does that look like? Does God give grace only to the humiliated? Does God give grace only to people who are eating humble pie? Does God give grace only to the self-loathing people or the guilt-ridden people? What in the world does this mean? God gives grace to the humble. So, James, fortunately, in the next part of chapter 4, fleshes this out for us, I believe, and gives us a picture of what a humble person looks like. So, in James chapter 4, let me give you some pictures. We're going to start at verse 7 that I think James fleshes out. He says, okay, God resists the proud but gives more grace to the humble. And he says, therefore, here's what I want you to do. Submit yourself to God. So the first thing a humble person does is a humble person submits themselves to God. Now that word submit means to put yourself under the authority of. So a humble person says, I am under God's authority. All right, now I want you to notice something here. That is a command. Submit yourself to God. You know why it's a command? Because naturally, we don't want to. Right? James just said earlier in James 4, we have a war within us. We have that sinful nature. You and I don't want to submit to God naturally. We just don't. All right? So James says, I want to give you a command. Here's what a humble person looks like. A humble person submits to God. Here's the deal. When you and I as Christians do not submit to God, we fight, we quarrel, we, we have hatred, we covet, we have wrong motives. I mean, even in the church, you know, when we're not submitting to God, we walk around with superior judgmental attitudes, a combative attitude and things like that. When there's humil no humility, as Christians, we fight and quarrel and all those things. And James says, you want to know how to be a humble person? First of all, you have to submit. You have to willingly place yourself under God's authority. I know you don't want to do this. I know your flesh doesn't want to do it. That's why I'm commanding you to do it. You and I have to consciously say... I am going to be under God's authority. And what God says, that's what I'm going to do. I want you to notice something else about this verse. Submit to God. It doesn't say submit to others. The starting point for humility is our relationship to God. You see, if we don't get our relationship to God right, we're not going to have fellowship with others. I think of 1 John, you know, where he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Well, why is that? Why don't we say we have fellowship with God? Well, if we're already walking with God, James says the deal is, if you're walking with God, you're going to have fellowship with other believers. If you're not getting along with other believers, then you've got a problem with you and God. And so James is saying the same thing here. He just says, Submit to God. You've got to do it. Here's the second thing a humble person looks like. He says, resist the devil. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, again, this is a command, because guess what? My flesh doesn't want to resist the devil. Just being honest. I want to follow, because guess what the devil tells me to do? If it feels good, do it, baby. Right? So my flesh is like, yeah, all right, yeah, I want to do that. But James says, look, a humble person 
Resist. Think about that word. Resist. Let me ask you a question. He says, resist the devil. Does that sound like a self-loathing person? Resist the devil. Does that sound like a person who's weak? Nope. Resist the devil. Does that sound like a person who's been kind of knocked down a peg? Nope. When he says resist the devil, does that sound like a person taking a stand? Does to me. When James says resist the devil, does that sound like a determined person? Does to me. When James says resist the devil, does that sound like a person who's strong in God? Does to me. You know, sometimes we think weak, you know, humble people are weak people. That's not the picture here. It's a person who willingly puts himself under God's authority and stands against the devil. They stand against their sinful nature. Remember, we still have those evil desires in us, chapter 4, verse 1. And, but a humble person says, I'm submitting to God and I am resisting the devil. Again, when Christ followers don't resist the devil, when we don't submit ourselves to God, we can be mean and rotten people just like everybody else. Okay? I know y'all have never experienced that. But can't the church be a brutal place? It can. Why is it? Because we're not submitting to God. All right? Notice he says, resist the devil. Now, an unbeliever, they really don't have any tools to do that. If you're a Christ follower, you have the tools. You know what it is? The Holy Spirit. You and I have the ability to do this. We can resist the devil. James wouldn't give you a command if it was impossible. So if you're like, oh, I just can't say no. Yes, you can. You have the Holy Spirit. Ask God to give you the strength. And notice what James says. Resist the devil and here's what will happen. And he will flee from you. He'll give up. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose you're like, man, I got to stop eating those brownies. Causing my blood sugar to spike. Causing me to gain weight. I got to stop eating those brownies. So you go to the dinner table and there is one of those warm, ooey, gooey brownies. And you're like, not going to eat it. I know it's going to spike my insulin, going to cause me to go into fat storage, going to spike my blood sugar, not going to do it. And so you don't. You walk away. You don't eat the brownie. The next day you go to the dinner table and there it is again, warm, ooey, gooey brownie. You say, nope, not going to do it. Is it easier the second time? It's just a little bit easier. I've done it once. Third time, gets a little easier. Fourth time you say no, it gets a little easier. After a while, brownie doesn't mean anything to you. You know why? Because you've told yourself, I have the power over this brownie. I can say no to that. You know, at first, it's hard for us to say no to maybe a, a particular sin in your life, a kind of a pet sin that you struggle with. But the more you say no through the power of the Holy Spirit, the easier it gets to say no. And after a while, Satan's like, Shh. Forget it. i got to go on to somebody else. This person's not moving. And he leaves you alone. And notice, too, that these are interlinked. When we submit to God and we resist the devil, those two are going to happen naturally. You submit to God, you're going to naturally resist the devil. Okay? And also notice this. What happens next? So a humble person submits to God. A humble person stands strong against the devil. And the next thing is a humble person draws near to God. Look at the next verse. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Again, it's a command. Why? Because you and I don't naturally want to do this. 
How do you draw near to God? Well, spend time in his word. Do you naturally want to have some time in God's word? Sometimes we just don't. Now, hopefully, as the more and more you spend in God's word, the more you crave it, the more you desire it. But if our flesh has its way, hey, I got to mow the yard, I got to go clean the dishes, I got to go do this, I got to do this, I got to go do this, I got to do this, and we don't sit down and spend time in the Word. I've done it. And it's easy just to say, oh, I'm not going to, I got other things to do. Naturally, we don't. Drawing near to God means getting on our knees and praying. Naturally, we just want to do our thing rather than getting on our knees and praying. All right? So again, James gives us a command, draw near to God. And notice what happens when you resist the devil, he flees. When you draw near to God, he arrives. Pretty contrast, pretty cool contrast. James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And what does that mean, he'll draw near to us? Well, Warren Wearsby, a great Bible teacher and commentator, said this. He said, he, he said here, here's how I want to illustrate this idea of drawing near to God. He said, I may be sitting in my living room paint, petting my Siamese cat. Now, why anybody would own a cat is beyond me. Okay, I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, if you're a cat lover, God. <laughs> I'm sorry, dogs rule. They lick you. They don't scratch you. Uh, but uh, I had a cat or two in my life. It was I won't tell you what happened to it. Um, no, no. I, I was good. I was good. I was not mean to the kitty cats. I was good. One was Tigger. One was Casey. I had a couple of them, actually, but been a dog person for the last some 20, 30 years. Anyways, Warren Wearsby said, I may be sitting in my living room painting, petting my Siamese cat, and my wife may be 20 feet away in the kitchen, yet I am nearer to my wife than my cat. Even though the cat's on my lap, I am nearer to my wife than my cat. You know why? Because I am more like my wife and we're in common with each other than I am a cat. There's nothing really common between us and the, me and the cat. You see, as you and I draw near to God, as we, as, as we, we become more like Christ, as we begin to live, live like, look like, love like Christ, God draws near to us. And we have that relationship with him. So again, when you resist the devil, he'll flee. When you draw near to God, he'll show up. When you draw near to God, he'll show up. So I think that's pretty good results of living in humility, right? A humble person's walking with God. A humble person, Satan's leaving him alone. Now this next one that James gives us, I'm going to tell you, this is tough. These next few verses are brutal. And I have wrestled with these a lot. Because here's another characteristic of a humble person. A humble person is broken before God. Here's what he says. Cleanse your hearts. Cleanse your hands, sinners. And purify your hearts, double-minded. Now, I want to stop there and say one thing. Because in the church, we get this backwards a lot. <clears throat> Sometimes we're like, clean up your life, then come to church. Clean up your life, then come to Jesus. But notice in the passage, the first thing you do is come to Jesus. Then you'll start cleaning up your life. 
You see, what happens is we say, well, I have to clean up my life first before I can come to Jesus. A lot of times you won't come to Jesus. You know, it's kind of like our, our weight loss ministry. I'll have people that will gain weight. It happens uh, to everybody. Uh, and they won't show up anymore because they don't want to come and get on the scale. Okay, we're not going to make fun of them. We're not going to be mean to them at all by any means. We're there to help them, but they won't come back and get on the scale again. You know what happens eventually? I never see them again. But just like happened this week, I'll have people come in and say, man, I've been gone for six weeks, and I kind of got off the wagon, and I gained some weight back, but I wanted to come in and weigh in because I knew I had to face it. Those are the people that will succeed because they have to face it. But they had to deal with their own self first. And so when you look at this passage, you see, again, the first thing we have to do is submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. And then he says, and cleanse your heart. That's going to be a natural outgrowing of this thing. When you're drawing near to God, you're naturally going to do this, okay? And, but when we so many times say, I've got to clean up first before I can come to God, even if you're a Christ follower, maybe you've gotten involved in some sin, and you're like, man, I've got to get my life straight, and then I'll start praying and things like that. Let me tell you the danger of that. It's pride. Because you start thinking, I can do this on my own. The first thing you need to do is come to God and submit yourself to God, draw near to him, resist the devil, and then God will start working through you and you'll naturally want to start cleansing your hands. So you start on the inside first, submit to God, draw near to God, resist the devil, then cleanse your hands. Make sure your outward behavior is aligned with your inward reality, that's what James is saying. Make sure that what you're doing out here is aligned with what's in here. Cleanse your hands. And notice he reminds us of who we are, sinners. That's what we are. Don't forget it. You're sinners. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. In other words, guard your heart. If you forget you're a sinner, you'll stop guarding your heart. Guard your heart. The next verse is pretty tough. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. I have to admit that I preached through this book about 20 years ago and I really still struggle with these verses. Does that mean James says I have to walk around being miserable? Do I have to walk around, oh, woe is me. Oh, I love Jesus. Oh, man, a horrible person. Can ever laugh. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you and I have to be broken over our sin. In other words, those things that make you laugh, are you laughing at sin? You shouldn't be laughing at sin. You should be weeping at it. Those things that bring you, quote, joy, if they're sin, you should be weeping and sorrowing over that. It's a topic we don't talk about much in the church today. Brokenness. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time, question I ask myself, that you've cried and wept over your sin? When is the last time you've been on your face before God mourning your sin? When is the last time that you've wept over the what sin's done in your life and the life of others. A lot of Christians, 
A lot of us, and I put myself in that mix, sometimes get real guilty of living in the cul-de-sac of confession. I'm sorry, God, I did it. Then we do it. I'm sorry, God, I did it. We do it. I'm sorry, God, I did it. We do it. I'm sorry, God, I did it. We just keep going around the little cul-de-sac of confession, as Matt Chandler calls it. When have you, when's the last time you've been on your face broken before God? You know, one of the things that scares me, we've been talking about evangelism on Wednesday night. One thing I am afraid sometimes in the church is we tell people, just pray this prayer and you're in. And I wonder, it's so easy just to pray a prayer. In fact, go back to your own conversion experience. Were you broken over your sin? Did you come face to face with the reality of your sin compared to a holy God? And did you say, God, forgive me? Did you repent? Did you say, God, I want to turn from this. I want to turn to you. I am broken over this. When's the last time you've done that? I'm afraid for many of us, we don't walk in brokenness a lot. Again, I don't, I don't think James is talking about walking around with your head hung down or oh, I'm a miserable person or woe is me, but it's a sense in which you understand the weight of sin and the ugliness of sin and the pain of sin. And it hurts you so deeply that you want to submit to God. You want to draw near to God. You want to resist the devil. Because you know what sin does. And I'm afraid so many times all of us have gotten desensitized to sin. And we forget that we have a holy God. And sin is an affront to him. And, and we sin and we say, oh God, see, I'm sorry. And then we keep going back to it. Really? Did you really repent? I mean, this is a brutal passage. James says, be miserable, mourn and weep. Come face to face with your sin. Is what making you laugh, is it sin you're laughing at? You ought to be mourning over that sin because look at what it does to people. Now I know some of us may be, oh man, come on Jim, I just wanted to come to your church and hear a great message and go home and have some fried chicken. What are you telling me about having to mourn over my sin? I'm just telling you this is what it looks like to be a humble person. I'm going to tell you, we will never fully experience God without humility. Never will. We can go to church, sing our songs, throw a few dollars in the offering plate, do our God thing on Sunday morning. But we will never experience God without humility. And James puts an end cap on this section, verse 10. He says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So here's the deal. We have two options. We can humble ourselves before God, or we can be humbled by God. Two options. 
We can humble ourselves before God or we can be humbled by God. And here's the deal. When you and I get honest with our sin and with our own evil desires and we get honest with ourselves, and man, maybe you need to go home this afternoon, just get on your knees and just get honest about some stuff. When we get honest about that, Satan will leave you alone if you'll just stand and submit yourself before God and God will draw near to you. And notice in verse 10, God will exalt you. There's incredible benefits to this. He will lift you up. So is a humble person a self-loathing person? No. Is a humble person a, a, a person who is, is guilt-ridden? No. Is a humble person a person who's been knocked down by peg? No. A humble person is an honest person who's honest with himself and the relationship with God. That's a humble person. A person who submits to God, resists the devil, draws near to God, who's sensitive to sin in their life, whose outward behavior aligns with their inward reality, who is not double-minded trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot in God. A humble person is focused on God. And let me just ask you, what would it look like if we as a church, all of us in this room, were to say, okay, I am going to walk in humility. What would that look like? Well, if you go back to verses 1 through 6, it would look like we would no more having quarrels and fights. We wouldn't be coveting murder. We would be consulting God. And when we do consult God, we would be asking with the right motives, not the wrong motives. That's what it would look like. So here's a question you and I need to ask ourselves. Here's the reality. You can either live in humility or hostility. We can live in humility towards God or we can live in hostility towards each other. If you live in humility towards God, the relationship with each other takes care of itself. If we're not living in humility with God, there'll be hostility with you and others. It's a question. You say, well, Jim, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I need to deal with stuff in my life, but they're not dealing. Don't worry about them. You worry about you. You just start with you. You start with you. I start with me. Because we have a choice. We can live humility or hostility. And I know sometimes we look at love, all great benefits of love, all great benefits of joy, all great benefits of self-control. I don't know about humility. That sounds like a downer. But let me tell you the great benefits of humility one more time. You're drawing near to God. God's drawing near to you. Satan's leaving you alone. And God's exalting you. I think those are pretty good benefits. So do you want to live in humility or hostility? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I admit that so many times I've lived in the cul-de-sac of confession, not always been broken by my own sin. And I ask you to forgive me of that. We see the ravages of sin in our own life, the ravages of sin in the world. And so many times we're just desensitized to it. It's so destructive. It destroys relationships. It destroys families. It destroys lives. 
and it destroys our relationship with you. God, I pray that this week every one of us will get on our knees and we'll get real with you. And that every one of us will choose to listen to you and to submit to you. Choose to resist the devil. Choose to draw near to you. Because, Father, we know there are great benefits when we do. You know, for just a few moments as Kelly plays, I just want you to do business with God in your own heart.